0: Just a quick moment to say a big thank you to my sponsor for this episode, Drowsy. Anyone who suffers from anxiety or stress will know just how detrimental poor sleep can be to your well-being. I, like you, know that a good night's sleep is profoundly healing and can really improve the quality of your life, which is why I've invested in a Drowsy sleep mask, as it guarantees that I'm going to wake up feeling great. I know what you're all thinking, it's just a sleep mask, but I can tell you it's unlike any sleep mask I've ever used. It has transformed the quality of my sleep. I'm sleeping better than ever before, in total darkness, and rarely wake up during the night. It's made from padded silk, which wraps around your head, and I can't tell you how heavenly it feels. And I don't wake up with any horrible skin creases or puffy eyes. You can't put a price on being able to sleep well every night, and it's reassuring knowing that whatever day you've had, you can go home and wrap yourself in drowsy and drift off. So if you're in need of the best night's sleep ever, drowsy is the answer. Head to drowsysleepco.com and use the code JULIA for 25% off of any of their sleep accessories today. That's drowsysleepco.com, D-R-O-W-S-Y, and use the code JULIA, J-U-L-I-A, for 25% off. Hello and welcome
1: to
0: Season 2 of the Therapy Works podcast the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I'll invite you into my therapy room, where I'll be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. My mission is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations, which may contain difficult emotions, can be profoundly healing. Hello, everyone. I am delighted to be with Geraint John again. So, for those of you who didn't listen to our first conversation, Geraint's beautiful wife, Debs, died mid September, age 43. And they have three children together, age 14, 12, and eight. And our last conversation, we talked about her dying because she had not yet died. And how you're going to talk to your children. Following our conversation, she did, as I said, die. And so I go to my first question after acknowledging how grateful I am for you joining me. And because your first conversation was so important and had a big influence on thousands of people, so now, I guarantee three months since Deb died, what is the greatest challenge for you and your family? I guess.
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question. We're kind of at a stage now where it's been three or four months, you know, since she's passed, and we're just adjusting. I think to life without her. So there hasn't been that much time really that's passed. And I think we're still in a stage where whether or not we've accepted it, I don't know. But we're just coming to terms with life, the planet without her and day-to-day life without her, because there's just so many memories, so much, yeah, just so many things going on in our heads that it's just very, very difficult to process, I think.
0: I think that's a description of grief, isn't it? That you can only really let yourself know the reality of it moments at a time, because it's so overwhelming and so huge that you get pulsating with the day to day and memories, and it's hard to take on the enormity of what you're facing. Could I, if it's not too pushy, ask you to go back and tell me the piece that happened between that conversation, where we talked about you going in, you being in denial and not telling the children that she was dying. And that, I think, was about six weeks before she died. What happened between then and her dying?
1: Yeah, so I remember, well, we, we recorded it and she was in hospital and she was very poorly with sepsis. And we were all rallying around her, and somehow she managed to which is quite typical of Deb's. She managed to beat the sepsis, even though she had pancreatic cancer. She beat it and there she was. So she got out of hospital and it was like one sepsis. You know, I've put something on my Instagram, Deb's one, sepsis nil. It was like a victory lap. So we got her back and it was still the battle and we're going to beat this.
0: But you knew underneath.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Even when you spoke to me, you knew you weren't going to beat it, no? No, yeah. I mean, I think that's what's valuable for listeners who want to know about this for their future or in this experience now. It's very possible to live in two mindsets at the same time. One is, on the one hand, knowing that she's going to die and equally, and on the other side, was believing that she was going to survive, that you held both.
1: Yeah. I do think about this quite a lot. And I think it was probably, you know, from my point of view, the last thing that I wanted was... For her to feel in any way upset or traumatized or in any way depressed, because that wasn't in her nature at all. So by keeping up this kind of positive, it's going to be okay outlook, it just meant that she was more in her final period. Because, you know, I I had researched it and I knew it was not looking good. So What I did want to happen was that for her, for every time that she had left, that time was that she was upset or more upset in any way that she needed to be. So, and rightly or wrongly, because there's pros and cons, of course, of this strategy, because then perhaps you don't talk about stuff that I'm here now running the household as a single dad and there's stuff that I wish that I would have probably asked her. But then if I balance it, I think, and if I could look back, If I could go back and do it again, I'd probably do the same. I do think about it quite a lot, though.
0: You wanted her to suffer the least and protect her the most. And that looks like as, as difficult and as complicated as that was, that was the best decision you could make at the time and actually you would make it again.
1: I think, yeah, I think that's right, yeah.
0: But there's a cost in that for you, isn't there?
1: Well, there is a cost to me, but I think again, on balance, I think I do it again because I'm still here. We've had some amazing experiences since she's passed, but which we'll chat about in a bit. And I'm just, to be honest with you, just really glad to be here.
0: To be alive. Has her death led you to value your own life and the life of people you love that much more?
1: Yeah, totally. It's changed my perspective on things massively in the sense that my outlook is totally different now because I value stuff a lot more, perhaps. And yeah, I just don't let, you know, so far, things get on top of of me as much, perhaps, as I did work-related stuff. I can't help but think, I just feel sorry for Debs that she had to go through all this. And what keeps me up at night is just the worry that she must have had that I perhaps I didn't know because we're just going through this hell together and and just how she must have been so scared. And I, ju- I just feel really sorry for her. And obviously, I'll talk to you about kind of what happened in between our last recording and, you know, her passing, because that was quite a traumatic couple of months, I guess. But it's just these kind of thoughts that stay with you and probably you always will, really. But she beat the sepsis. We got back. And the life was... It was the summer and... Um, I think me and my son went away for a week and that was great. So this was like, I look back at it now and it's like, oh, wow, that was a final month August. And had I known that she only had six weeks left?
0: Would you have done something differently if you'd known?
1: No, not really. I don't think I would have.
0: That's important, isn't it? Not to have regrets.
1: No, I don't regret anything, really. I think I, on reflection, did the best, really, that I could. I think I... Hopefully I supported her in the the best possible way and she felt loved and supported and and that was my mission, really. So in August, life was going on as normal. We actually went away to a lovely place called Sandwich on the south coast, which we like. Really lovely little place and um, we're quite fond of it around there. And she, she had these bad pains in her stomach constantly and she was in a lot, a lot of pain. And I was just thinking... And, you know, we were thinking it's something to do with the, you know, because she had her pancreas removed and and she had all these horrific things as a result of that, which she never complained about, bless her. And, you know, she's on the bed in a lot of pain. So we went to the beach and she couldn't get out of the car and she was just sat in the sun, probably the last time she sat in the sun. And probably realised then that I could work out it was something bad because she was in a lot of pain. So we went back to London got her checked in. And I remember this because you would remember it much more. I remember it really blow by blow. Vividly. Yeah, vividly. It, it, we were in A&E, you know, we're sat there and, you know, she's in a lot of pain. And, and of course, when you get checked into Amy, because she wasn't on chemo anymore, um, you have to wait because if you're on chemo, um, you get whisked through. If you're not on chemo, um, it's not as a higher priority. So she was literally, we were there for seven hours. There's all this chaos chaos going around us, kind of just drunks and fights. And it was quite um, Shakespearean actually, just this scene, this kind of hell, and we're looking at each other. I think she probably was still being, "Yep, this is just, we've been, we've done this plenty of times. I'm going to go in and I'm going to absolutely destroy this again. And then she's in hospital for another week, and it wasn't looking good. You know, the nurses said to me that she's very, very poorly. And then she got moved to her own room. And, of course, looking back now, I know what was happening. They were separating her. And, and of course, then she started to deteriorate a little bit and her skin colour started to change.
0: So when you're dying, your organs, the systems in your body, begin to slow down, don't they, and not operate so effectively?
1: Yeah, So so that was happening, and it was very upsetting for her. And you. Yeah, well, obviously for me, yeah. I was hellish just kind of seeing her like that. And then the palliative team started to come in, and I knew what was happening then. And then I had to chat to them and ask some very direct questions. How long? And they said, you know, a couple of weeks max. So all of a sudden we'd gone from beating sepsis to being in sandwich to being in A&E in that horrible scene to it's like the end of the road and you can see the sign. So it's like, right, so am I processing it? Probably not because I'm in overdrive because I've got the children at home. I'm still working as well. And, you know, at that point, I just put my out-of-office on. And then it was persuading her that to go in, to go into the hospice, you know, and we were saying, can you go down and check it out? Like it's a hotel. So I said, yeah, yeah, I'll go down. So I drove down, had a look around, you know. That's a
0: very poignant memory, isn't uh, it? It's like her being her, like...
1: Yeah. So I drove all the way down to uh, St. Christopher's, which is obviously fantastic, and had a look around. Was I thinking? that the, I was, but I just wanted her to be comfortable because the hospital was... Hell that she was in. She was in this room. I was having to shower her every morning and all of that, and and it was quite a bit much, you know, for her and me. I think at that point, but we did it. We we got through it. And the main job was to get her the shower every morning.
0: Is that shower in the morning a, a bit like that, Admiral? Like make your bed every day? That if you do this one task. It sets you up for the day in the sense that I'm still alive I've had a shower I'm clean I'm ready to face the day it was like a center point that was counter to her deteriorating health and the bedlam that you were in being in hospital.
1: I mean totally that was really important to her with much respect to Debs you know she's quite remarkable really and um, there's another little kind of anecdote. I was at home and I had a phone call. You've got to come down now. You've got to come down now. She said, you've got to, I've got to get out of here. She said, I've got to get out of here. You've got to help me. So I came down and she was in a wheelchair at this point. She couldn't walk and she was just outside the bit in the corridor. And I went and she grabbed my hand and she said, if I don't walk outside now, I'm never going to get out of here. I have to be able to walk. So anyway, so we tried to walk her out. So, and she just, one step, one step. Her willpower, her determination. Honestly, I was just, what on earth is going I'd be told that she's got two weeks left to live, which I obviously can't tell her this yet. Now here she is on a different mission. And it's really important to me that I say this because for whoever's listening, if my children listen in the future, when they're older or whatever, or they read back on stuff like this, then they know what a hero she was. So she's walking down the corridor and, of course, she had to give up and sit down. And I said, for sure, I'm just going to get the wheelchair again and put her back. And then she fell asleep for a couple of hours. <sighs> uh, bless her, in her head, you know, she was so determined.
0: It's heartbreaking. She she so wanted to live and be alive and walk.
1: Yeah, and much respect to her, really. And I'll often say this, there's like one of you and there's a billion of the rest of us. There's only one of you. You're quite... Remarkable in in lots of ways that I couldn't possibly summarise now.
0: But it's like you're talking to her as if she's she's alive in
1: you. Yeah, I think so. So the kind of what happened after that was she got out of the horrible ward, which was good, and reported back to duty that St Christopher's was indeed suitable for her to go to, and I'd signed it off suitable there's a garden and it was a different world then in st christopher's she was sat by this big window overlooking south london and kent she was sat in this beautiful chair she had this really nice big smile on her face she obviously looked poorly and the the people that work in st christopher's were just so friendly and loving and she really enjoyed their company and the chats she felt safe. She felt really safe. And, and I think she still thought she was going to get out of there, to be honest with you. Because she's saying, But this, you know, so will I be able to go home after this? And they're going, y- you, Yeah, yeah, potentially. Yeah, you, potentially. So she's ringing her dad, 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 can you get a stair gate uh, and a stair lift installed in the house? <laughs> uh, so I thought that was amazing as well. So she's still battling on she's still not giving up life's still there and it's still there for the taking you know she's going to get better so I'm going back and forth every day you know there's a lovely cafe there we'd take her down to the cafe we'd have chats and the kids would come every day and they are so brave so so brave that you know they were seeing her looking quite poorly so had you talked to them by this point had you
0: told them that she had two weeks to live or 10 days to live at this point?
1: I think at this point I had had the conversation with them whereby I said that mum's going to die. Yeah, I had had the conversation that she's not going to make it and mum's going to die.
0: What did you say? Did you do it on your own or did you have a family member with you?
1: No, I did it on my own and I had notes, I think, from a conversation that I'd had (laughs) and i have written the notes down and I just followed it really methodically one by one. And, you know, essentially it was like a summary of the situation and it was clear to me that there had to be no misinterpretation from my words. So it had to be very, very direct and very, very clear with no room for any maneuver because of course children always look for, but what if? But surely there must be something you can do, and no, she's going to die. And that was obviously the worst 20 minutes of my life, you know.
0: Oh, god, yeah,
1: yeah, was in this room actually that I'm in now. Um, yeah,
0: oh,
1: yeah, so yeah, we, uh, we were crying and crying, and uh, I hadn't really thought about this actually. And we then went back into support mum mode, which the three of them did so well, just so well. And we were going to the hospice and, you know, she was deteriorating, but still determined. And we even had a Zoom call the Monday before she died with the surgeon in Germany. And she was trying to get me to get a private jet to take her to Germany. And I was going, I don't think you're going to make it on the plane. She thought about it and we had a Zoom call, both of us, with this doctor. She just couldn't make it up, really. She's still, at this point... Fighting. Yeah, and that's... Exactly, and that's the kind of message that, um, for anyone listening to this, it's um, the fight. And this that, that fight that um, in life, which I think is really important that she had, and to never give up. Anyway, that was our little mantra, anyway. And so, at that point, she's deteriorating, and we had to have the conversation about the funeral and what she wanted, which was awful. So while she was fighting, you managed
0: somehow to have a conversation that if she died, what would she want for her funeral?
1: Her mum, who was absolutely brilliant, um, and me, who were going through this hell together. um, I think we're both probably just quite traumatised now, I think, after what we've been through together. Um, So we went and had the conversation, listed what we needed to ask and then I had to go back to the room and then ask her. I, I thought, I'm just going to treat this like a business conversation where I'm dead, apparently. And I said, No, I'm just taking all emotion out of this now. I said, I'm just going to ask you some questions. I just want you to just tell me what you want. And then we just went through them. Mm-hmm. And then she then, I think at that point, she accepted. It was at that point. At that point, she. it was not until any second in time before I had that conversation. Mm-hmm. And then she said to so me, like, oh, well, that's that then, is it? which is typical of her little sarcastic. uh, She could be quite sarcastic sometimes, which was very funny. So that's that then, is it? I said, well, you know, I don't know what to say, you know. Um, But we're just preparing um, and I needed to be right. And then I think I went and I came back and the next day she was, at that point she gave up and then she stopped. The The morning after she was gone, she was just unable to talk or anything. And that was it then.
0: Are you connecting the conversation that you had with her about the funeral and her saying, well, that's it then, with a sort of slightly kick in her, you've given up on me, or that there's no fight left, and her dying?
1: Yeah, 100%. So that was it. There's no doubt in my mind that at that point she'd had, which makes me, if I couldn't respect her even more, I have more respect for her, thinking, wow, so you must have spent all of this time where all the rest of us were kind of, ter- you know, and you were so strong that you made it right up until the very end. It's like she's at the edge of the cliff and people are trying to push her over and she's battling everyone off. She's battling everyone off. No way I'm going down there. So madness, really. And then, of course, the really tricky bit was that I'm then I'm undone. It's the last day. And-
0: Can you say what that was like, being gone?
1: I think at this point... I'd be really strong and positive, you know, like I was on the last podcast, you know, Yeah. positive geraint, <laughs> which perhaps gives it a bit more context now, you know, that I've explained how it happened. And then, of course, I'm seeing her uh, terribly, incredibly,
0: incredibly ill and looks really ill. I mean, when someone's dying, they look like they're dying, don't they? It's a very painful thing to witness.
1: Yeah. So I'm... It was really upsetting. So I'm playing really lovely music for her. And and it's just, this is just the woman that I love. You know I love? And she's reaching the end at a, at a ridiculously premature time, you know, and this stuff that I wanted to say to her and all of that jazz. And then I thought, oh, my gosh, I've got to go get the kids. So I ran to the school. It's quite t- typical of us. This had to be really dramatic, didn't it, you know? So um I'm driving as fast as I can bring the school, you've got to go and get some sort of the junior school. Just just make sure she's by the gates. Just make sure she's by the gates. So just drag her in. What's happening? What's happening? I'll tell you now. And then of course my twelve year old has just started high school. Bless her. Can you imagine? Just started high school and I have to go and get her and a brother and there they knew. I they had just walked to the car and we were in silence. And then I had to do another big speech in the garden of the St. Christopher's where I just said, look guys, mum's gonna die today and we're going to go up now and we're going to say goodbye and we all need to be strong and you're all brilliant and you're all amazing and we can do it together as a team, but we have to go up now. And then of course we went up and we were saying goodbye and she just, um, she passed away while we were all there, all the kids. Oh
0: my goodness.
1: Yeah. So she, she waited, we're convinced really until they were there so she got a bit upset and uh, yeah, she, uh, yeah. yeah, that was her. And we, we, we just stayed with her for a bit. And then what do you do, you know, it's like, well, and we just decided after about an hour of just hysterical crying that we were going to go back. And, and that was, that was that. Then yeah. we, we went back here and she, uh, she wasn't here. And that was the strangest thing. She She wasn't here. And then that night was, I said, well, what what do you want to do? I said, should we just go up for a burger? because so, there's a burger restaurant that we all used to like. Um, so we just walked down, sat in silence, kind of eating this burger really slowly and miserably. And 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 then, yeah, so that was that's the story. I thought it was quite dramatic and it could only have been that way, really, with us and her. It was like a film. And she went kicking and screaming, basically. <laughs>
0: I just want to say a quick thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Youth and Earth. Youth and Earth are a supplement company designed to help us all feel younger for longer. Their product addresses the causes of aging at a cellular level and help us to maintain and sustain a fit and active lifestyle. Their NMN delayed release capsules are one of the staples of my anti-aging, much needed arsenal. I really love them. They're entirely natural. They boost my energy levels and work to promote cell vitality throughout my body. I feel amazing with them. So if you're like me and looking to slow down the aging process, then I encourage you all to take advantage of a very generous 25% off when using the code julia25 on your first order head to www.youthandearth.com now and give your body every opportunity to feel more youthful i'll just say it again www.youthandearth.com the poignancy of your memory is she went kicking and screaming and she held on until all of you were in the room with her and that that was her last act of love in not finally letting go. Okay, it was dramatic in true John fashion, but once all four of you were in the room with her, she felt, I guess, peace enough or to surrender, to let
1: herself. Yeah, she needed to to go, you know. I just said some nice words to her. And we'd let her know what she meant to us. And she could hear. I know she could hear, but she just weren't bodied, given up. So after we returned home, then we're in overdrive because we're planning the funeral. So anyone listening to this who's been in a similar situation, and I guess lots of us have, if it's a parent or a... And so we, we decided that she was going to go out with her in style. I did anyway, so... We booked a big house in Dulwich um, where we used to like going and so booked the whole house. And there was when we got married, there was a string quartet playing Beatles songs, because you know, we'd like the Beatles. Who doesn't like the Beatles? So there was a, a string quartet playing the same songs. There was like really good food. My mate, who's a cheesemonger brought some cheese. Yeah, lots of people came and it was quite a sunny day. So that was nice. And obviously before that, the funeral as well, which was um quite something so many people came to the funeral just from all parts of our history and um, my job was to console the kids who were obviously very very upset so we got nice white, white cars to take her down vintage something and so it was she arrives really nicely and then obviously the kids were just
0: Beside themselves
1: Yeah So I'm comforting them And obviously I've got hundreds of people Looking at me Just devastated for me And I'm having to do it again now So I'm just, Remember I said the showman So I'm doing it again So I was aware of it I was like I've got to, I know this is really awful So I, I'm going to Keep my shit together now And I'm going to Be strong for everyone So I'm holding the kids It's going to be right, It's going to be alright and you're not going to be all right, but, you know, just trying to make them feel loved and, and happy. And then we go into the funeral and... It was, yeah, it was beautiful. Lots of people spoke. I, then I spoke last. When uh, John Lennon got inducted to the Hall of Fame, Paul McCartney wrote him a letter, Dear John. And it was... I thought, oh, that's quite a good way of doing it, actually. So I just wrote her a letter, Dear Deb, and it was what she meant to me from start to finish and thanking her, I guess, for everything. That's when the showman went, and then I just collapsed after my speech. I chose the most depressing, like Stevie Wonder. She's a rainbow by the Rolling Stones, which is what, yeah, we walked down the aisle to, which I don't know if that was a good idea because that set everyone off.
0: Did you record the funeral? Yeah. It's a good thing to have done.
1: Yeah, I think so. And then the final song was um, Into My Arms by Nick Cave, which is beautiful.
0: Oh, my goodness. Yes, I love that song.
1: And that was our first dance, so... So it was all related to the wedding, which I thought was good. It's love.
0: It's about your love. Yeah. I mean, what what I'm aware of as you're speaking is all of these If emotions of colours, like the kind of rainbow of colours from the devastation of her actually dying in the room together with all of you in there at the hospice to the numb, automatic, robotic experience of going to get a hamburger, not speaking, and then getting into overdrive to organize a funeral, getting into performance mode to kind of conduct everybody. Yeah. And that there's so much happening all at the same time, but at the heart of it is your love for Deb and the love that your children had for her and how you are wanting to honor that, celebrate that. And also in ways let yourself feel the pain of her loss and that is a lot to hold
1: yeah it is and I think the period after that has been a very different period whereby I'm not like that at all you know because I think that's taken it took a lot out of me
0: you must have been exhausted I mean grief is physically exhausting but
1: yeah so I lost a lot of weight um because I just wasn't hungry you know so didn't really want to eat. And I love cooking, but I was always cooking for Debs. You know, that was always our thing. And then suddenly I'm cooking for myself. And it's not, not the same appeal. It's not really there. So I was skipping. No. So my strategy was to drink Huel, the drink with all the... So, you know, I'm starting to lose whips. So I'm starting to look like Keith Richards, which is good, because I've always had a bit of a chubby appearance. So uh, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wow, I, this is quite good. Um So not good, though. And you know it isn't. No, I know. So obviously... My role since then has just been for the kids, you know, to make sure that they're, uh, I guess, in this period of the worst period of we could ever go through, really, where she's not here, is to make my thing is I want to make the house full of love. Yeah, we're just it's a house full of full of love. There's no shouting. There's no stress. Like literally last night, Sarah, and my daughter, came down and she couldn't sleep. It's like midnight or something. And she's upset. She thinks I'm going to be angry, you know. I said, "I just, I've told you, it's no problem. You just do what you. If you can't sleep, you can't sleep. So it's no problem. Don't get stressed. There's nothing to be stressed about." And then that was, "Oh right, okay." So obviously they take advantage of me massively now in a funny way. So it's been a really difficult period, and this could be a whole nother podcast. I think. <laughs>
0: Well, it's the day-to-day grind of grief, isn't it? In some ways, what you've been describing is the events that lead to the peak devastating moment, but it comes with it, is adrenaline and performance and drama in some ways. I mean, I don't mean to make it take away from the very real distress and loss. But then the grind of missing her every day. Is a completely different process for all of them. And I, you know, you've got three children of different ages, two daughters and a son. The reality of the loss and the level of the pain is the same for everyone, but how they express it, how they feel it, what they need is very unique and individual. And so between the four of you, there's a lot going on in the kitchen or. At
1: night. Well, there's a lot going on, yeah. And after she passed, a week later, it was Emmiss's birthday, so I hosted a birthday party for her. You know, I thought, I was just I thought, I just got to get on with this. I've got to do the birthday. That
0: is your mantra: get on with it, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I just we we got on, and the parents came, and they're looking at me, going, "I can't believe you're doing this." And I was going, "Well, what choice have I got? <laughs> I have to do it. It's a birthday." So we did that and actually went quite well. Some quite funny moments where the pizzas arrived an hour late and I could just feel Deb just going, why on earth did you not order them before? Why didn't you just buy some pizzas? So So she was still present.
0: So is she she talking to you all the time saying, come on, Garrett, pull your finger out?
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Or, 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 you know... And if I do something well, I'm like a little kid, you know, if I do something I think good, I expect the praise. Oh, well, thank you. And you did really well there.
0: <laughs> when you do well, you channel high. And when you do badly, it's just you, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we, uh, we've had three birthdays it's in six weeks. So we had the three birthdays. We had a week, and the day, the day after the funeral was our wedding anniversary. You couldn't make it up really. So it's our wedding anniversary. And I think, oh, it's just, this there's this it's, i'm being tested here aren't i i really am so then in october i just took them away to greece for a week which was the best decision ever so we went to a place called the pelagoni club in zante which is amazing really geared up for kids lots of water sports there were smiles then for a week you know which was good Wow.
0: Well, from had tears for the weeks before so many tears
1: so, yeah and we had a fun, and then obviously there was quite poignant moments expecting her, her to walk down in her holiday dress. I got really upset a lot actually, just visualising her because it was so close. To how, how you know, it's so less than a month since she passed, and we we're in Zante, mm-hmm. still imagining her there. The and-
0: so first holiday without her. It's the presence of absence, isn't it? Her putting on her lovely summer kit and bikini, and.
1: Yeah, and, and also feeling a bit guilty because we should have loved to have gone to Zante, and for whatever reason, life just took over. We never did because we were just so preoccupied with half terms, and we weren't at that stage yet. I don't think in our you know lovely um, journey where we would had the holidays in October or, what, or Christmas, and that. Upsets me a little bit that she didn't see the things that I wanted to, that not I want, that sounds really patronizing, that she wanted to see because we had, our life had been so preoccupied with work and bringing up the children that we hadn't got to that stage yet. So
0: I think one of the things that often gets missed in grief is that you're grieving for your own personal loss. But also you grieve for the future that the person you loved should have had, expected to have, had every right to have, which is particularly intense if it's a death out of time, if it's a young woman. So you're grieving multiple losses. You know, you're grieving seeing the loss in your children's faces and their experiences. You're grieving your own, but also you're grieving depths. Like she should have been there and she would have loved it. And so there's a guilt, but also there's a real experience that's impossible to describe of of loss. And you can call it injustice or unfairness, but it's more than that, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I, I feel this daily and I feel guilty that she doesn't get to do the things that she enjoyed doing anymore. So I kind of made my pact with myself. And that's what I said in the funeral, that, and that's why I said when I went to see her, uh, you know, afterwards, um, was that I was going to do all the things that we were meant to do. That was I, don't, I won't let you down, and all the things that you wanted to do, I'm going to do with the kids. So that's kind of where we're at now. In between the, you know, it's Monday morning now, and but I just can't be asked, you know, with anything. I'm just. She's been gone four months. And I know the children can't be asked because they're, they're all home at the moment. They didn't go to school today, and I just can't be asked. I just think, and I've never been like this in my life, you know. And I probably will pass like all things, but I'll just, I'll just listen to an album, or might just meet mates for lunch pretty much every day, and just
0: is the can't be asked. It sounds like there's a combination of things going. One is low mood and grief that like you feel low. The other is nothing really matters. Now that Deb's has gone, nothing matters as much. In the small way, like don't sweat the small stuff, like everyone's alive, so what the hell, doesn't really matter. And the other is a kind of flatness of you haven't quite naturally, I mean, four months in, you're used to having access to a lot of energy and hope and positivity of going forward. And at the moment, you're all flatlining. And that is what grief feels like.
1: Yeah. So I didn't really see this bit coming, but you're right. I am able to put stuff into perspective a little bit more. So perhaps previously, and I guess anyone listening to this can relate to it, whereby work is everything and that's all I care about. And I'd stress about things quite a lot, which was probably really annoying for Deb. But being the hero that she was, she supported me throughout it all and made sure that I got through it. And and then now I'm like, well, what was all that about? So it's Monday and I'm thinking, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? If I don't really want to do what I used to do today, I'll just chill out and just hang out with the kids for a bit because this is just a phase and we'll get through it and I'll probably make them a fish finger sandwich in a bit.
0: (laughs) I guess it's getting to know a different version of yourself, isn't it? Which is it sounds like you're not fighting it, which is good. And it sounds like you're allowing yourself to be as you are, which is also helpful. Do you know what is supporting you for people listening who are going through something similar? Can you name two or three things that support you to both manage enough to function as a dad and get the fish fingers in the fridge, work enough that you bring home enough money to Pay the bills and also be changed by it, so that you know what really matters
1: everything's changed massively now, so i'm not really exercising as much, uh, which was always my thing, which is interesting really, but I just again i'm just can't be bothered really at the moment so but I, I think that's really important that I do that um, get better, but at this stage that's not really a priority. I think friends are particularly supportive, which is helpful i've got a really good close network of friends and that's really good so that's extremely helpful and the kids have got really good friends as well which is extremely helpful as well so they're constantly occupied and entertained and have stuff to look forward to which is really helpful because whilst you know we have our can't be as we call them you know they still see their friends have sleepovers my thing is that what's getting me through is stuff to look forward to so we tend to do stuff on the weekends so on saturday like i took the youngest to Kid zania in westfield which was actually hell but she enjoyed it and that was the all day of, and we, we went ice skating the saturday before that we went to antigua over christmas for 10 days which we've never done but i didn't realize this but when you asked it i now know what's getting me through so we did a helicopter tour of antigua and then i was thinking about deb's you know like this is for you Doing this because I remember what I said, all the things that he wanted to do. So he did that. We went snorkeling in the tropical waters and saw all the tropical fish and the reefs. And me and my middle daughter did that. And I remember that was a bit of a moment, us looking at each other. I was thinking, this is good. This is good. Well done, Garrett. Come on, praise me, Debbie. <laughs> this is a praise moment.
0: The two things that really enable you to keep going is the love and connection to others. That makes an enormous difference. But also living with experiences with Debs in mind, both as their mum and as the love of your life, in that living, missing her, but also living and doing the things that you think she would encourage.
1: Yeah, definitely. So then that helps you make sense of the day and the world then. So I'm thinking, all right, well, I'm not going to get as stressed as I did because that's a total waste of time because I could literally get run over by a bus tomorrow. And that is a high, you know, I've seen it with my own eyes. I understand life and death much more than I did because I've actually been through it from diagnosis to the end. And I was there for the entire process. So I understand this now and I understand that life is really important and it's important that I make the most of it. So therefore, I am going to have, I can't be asked today. And I am going to go and do all these nice things. And that's what puts the smile on my face. And then the strategy is that I do that enough for long enough that the grief has kind of passed to a point that it's uh, not as raw as it perhaps is now, you know?
0: I think that's a wonderful point to end the conversation. Like this is a lifelong process in many ways. You're in this particular phase now. And it does sound like you are getting enough support and doing enough things that support you to enable you to adjust, and that it's changed you, and it's changing you. It's changing all of you. You're not fighting it. And you know that the intensity of the loss that you feel will also change over time. And you now can't not know that people die. There's a growth in that, as that you have to live the best life you can live if you really do know that you're going to die.
1: Well, totally. And I think like the final thing that I was, was say was I felt that we were invincible or I was invincible. She was saying, it's not going to happen to her. You know, a bit naive. Yeah, it's not going to happen to us. It's fine, you know. I actually believed that. No, 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 that's not going to happen. Uh, and then, of course, I now do realise that, yep, it could happen. So, yeah, live your best life.
0: Thank you so much, Garrett. That's, I really appreciate you giving me your very precious time.
1: Thank you. No problem.
0: One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, It is really interesting to see what their takeaways are, what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. We're going to talk about Garent, who was our first unheard voice in our first series. And he talked about... Deb's having died and how that happened and the pain of telling his children and witnessing it. I imagine people will find it both painful and informing to hear. I don't know what your first thoughts were.
2: What a gift and an honour that he gave to you and to anyone listening to sort of let people in to his experience so up close and personal and as it happened and I think that I just felt very very grateful to him and to his family and to Debs for allowing us to bear witness to what his experience was of that gratitude and enormous enormous sadness mm, I really echo that aim, I felt it was
3: just so sad. I definitely cried listening to it. I think one of the things, as you're speaking, I'm recognizing is how valuable and how generous it is to talk through something that, if you're not on the other side yet, can feel very scary or what that might look like. And I know before my mother-in-law died, someone sat down with me and gave me a, like a very detailed blow-by-blow of the death of their father in the minutiae and there was something very helpful about hearing just what it might look like obviously it was going to be different for me than them in the way that other people who may be losing a partner or someone close to them, it will be different than Garen's experience but it just is demystifying something that is often I think actually what does death look like and what does finding out look like and what the last minutes look like and what do you do afterwards how do you eat something all of that is such a black hole Yeah, it's like not being able to imagine it and someone being so generous as to share what that looked like for them just, I think, paints a bit of some sense of what may happen, what can look like when it feels such a black unknown hole,
2: if it hasn't happened yet. Yes, and there's just the humanity of it, that even amongst the most painful, devastating experience for all of them, there were sort of funny moments like her saying, you know, go go check out the hospice like it was, <laughs> like like a hotel. So that the sort of humanity of that, that we don't have to always stay in this place of darkness, even in the moment of the greatest darkness. There can be tiny little moments of sort of dark humor in a way within that. And I think what
0: I was aware of, listening back to it, not at the time he was talking to me. And it's interesting actually having the conversation, I'm not always aware exactly what I'm hearing. I'm hearing in relationship to him, but I'm not always sure what the third part of us conversation together brings up, if you see what I mean. And the thing that I'm very aware of is that people are really truly themselves when they're dying and they don't become someone different. So she was brave and feisty and funny and fought it. And that message that she said to him, "Uh, that's that then, is it? (laughs) That's that then, which is kind of feisty and cross, but also beneath it so much hurt and upset, but also very fully her, And that's what I got from him, that she was herself all the way through. And in that way, I think there are no rules about when you talk to someone about their dying, that most complex of all subjects, talking to the person who's dying about their dying, and that he was really up to the edge until the day before she died, and when they talked about what was likely to happen in the funeral. And for other people, it might be a year before they die. And to recognize you can only be yourself, both as the person who loves them and is significant and also the person who is dying and that we can't reshape ourselves into someone different in such an extreme situation.
2: And that he knew her so well that he, I think, had a sense of like, once we've had this conversation, then that something might change. And I think the connection he made was, we had this conversation, obviously he knew that she was going to die quite shortly after, but then it was like sort of the next day, I think, wasn't it? So just sort of knowing her and knowing when it felt right to do it for her, like you say, of right at the end.
3: I recognise both in myself and with clients, that thing of feeling like you're in other time, in my head, that's what I call it, other time. When he was talking about now, being at home, not necessarily going to school, just living in a rhythm that is very different to the rhythm of most people's everyday life. That when these huge events happen, it's like your life is going at a very different pace in a very different way to everybody else around you and everyone else seems to be getting up, going along. You know, it's like that experience that probably people have heard about walking down the street and seeing everyone else sort of still being normal and everything has changed for you. Whether that's just finding out about someone's diagnosis or whether someone's just died. And I just recognize that in this description of where they were at the moment in this other time. But things for now just need to be allowed to be as they are and how much you would seem to be allowing, not trying to force things to be normal, allowing things to be as they are, which is sometimes can't be asked
0: and sometimes do something. And also the mantra is, I want a house full of love. So I'm not going to tick you off for not going to school. And I've changed my perception of what matters. And it used to be work and busyness. And now it's a house full of love. And, you know, that could be a title of a book, right?
2: And I think in terms of thinking about his children and his response to them, I think so many of the things that he's doing are things that I think he just has such good instincts for because I think you know what children really need in this situation is that it's model being sad that it's okay to be sad but also just because your child's not sort of showing grief doesn't mean that they're feeling grief so just allowing them to be where they are in that moment and knowing that as long as you've made sure they know that it's okay to express whatever it is that they feel that it's also fine for them to enjoy things. Like he talked about some of their holidays together and actually being able to enjoy that—that that you don't have to sit in the puddle all the time. It's okay. You know, I think, Mum, you talk a lot about you know puddles, jumping in and out of puddles of grief, and that really resonated with me as he was speaking.
0: Absolutely, and that jumping out of the puddle and allowing yourself joy on holiday or moments or at a hamburger joint, is as important as being in the puddle of grief and that it's the movement between the two poles that allows you to grieve and allows you to manage the pain of grief because you can't be in the puddle all of the time. And I think there's some misunderstanding or this guilt is such a big part of grief that often I think people don't give themselves permission and then don't model that for their children of being okay, having a break, doing things that restore you because that gives you the emotional energy to drop back in to the lost work.
2: I think that is really true, mum. And I think the inverse can also be true is that I think it can be so painful to imagine that our children feel pain, that there's this sort of idea that children are more resilient and don't feel grief as intensely as adults. And that also is a fallacy that just because your child might not be showing what you or somebody else thinks of as signs of grieving doesn't mean that their experience is any less intense or meaningful than an adult. And so I think it is important to know that how your children is acting like whether they're acting normal doesn't mean that their experience of grief is any less than an adult. And sometimes the waves of emotion for children come out a long time
3: after the event. There's not sort of time, like, this is when they grieve, and then this is when it should start getting better. And, you know, the kid may want normality for and sort of things to feel like they're normal for a long time. And then six months, year, two years, that's when louder forms of grieving can happen there's not a sort of time frame
2: yeah and as a child if you're a child whose parents have died their death means different things at different stages of your life so if you're very very young when your parent dies and you don't necessarily have any active like cognitive memories of them beyond like photos and stories people have told you then you are grieving that enormous loss of not having that But you're also battling with this sort of complex thing that you don't actually remember them. So do you have a right to miss them? And those are things that you have an understanding of as you get older. And so I think your grieving as a child changes as your development changes, but it's like a constant process. Mm. It's like there's
3: new waves of losses. You become in a different relationship to your loss through your different life phases.
2: Yeah. And your understanding of what your loss is, is different. Because when you're a really young child, you don't have an awareness that your experience is any different to anybody else's. And then as you get older, you like if you're really sort of two or three, you don't have a sort of realization that other people's parents don't die. And so there's sort of just, I think, different ages, you have different levels of understanding and that brings with it different waves of grief.
0: And different milestones of your life, you do grieve again because it's going to university or your first boyfriend or you're getting married or...
2: Or even young, like your period
0: or graduating. Um, or your mum's died and you're going to buy your first bra and it's with somebody else. There's that. And also within siblings, what I've noticed is that younger siblings are jealous of the older siblings who had more of their parents. So I've had that very often, like I got less of them, you got more of them. And that isn't often recognised. And I think linking to what you're saying isn't recognised about grief is, you know, obviously we all know that you don't get over it, but you grieve the life that parents should have had with you, as well as you grieve them in the present. And I think that's often not fully recognised.
2: Yeah. And and so that it it might be that even if your child has a parent who died a long time ago and maybe they had therapy then at different points in their life it might be really really helpful for them to get some more help that it doesn't tend to be a one and done situation and that's obviously just an assessment for families to make themselves
0: i think that's a great point to end on thank you emily and sophie um And thank you, everyone listening. I hope you really got something from this podcast as raw as it was. Thank you particularly to Garrett John for being so open. And thank you all for listening. And I hope you like the podcast and you can rate it and review it and subscribe. Maybe share it with a friend if you know someone. This would be helpful. And we will see you next week. Many thanks. Bye.